Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, Wolfman's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 608. 608 times we've gotten together, and God willing, we'll get together 608 more in the future. May not be getting together tomorrow, though, folks, because uh, I am going up to the bug out location. I plan on doing a, a show on the way up there, or maybe tomorrow morning uh, at my location. But uh, I got a buddy going with me that's dealing with kind of a hard time, so because uh, I'm going to be uh, kind of playing uh, lifestyle cheerleader with him and trying to get him back on track while we're up there. It may not happen, and there may not be a show Monday as well. But we will do a show today, and because I don't want to get backlogged any further than I already am on all your calls. Today's show is going to be mostly a call-in show. We're going to do eight calls today. I do have some things that I need to talk to you about that I cannot wait any longer to talk to you about. One is about some people I've really supported in the past. That's going to be the first story today. And then the second one is about something going on in China that I just think you need to know about. I've gotten so many emails from the audience. I don't want to wait till the next email show to, uh, to talk about that. But before we do your calls and these two stories, I want to go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one is always let's take care of our sponsors. They do an awful lot to help take care of you and make sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Uh, sponsor of the day number one, Fortress Self-Defense. Look, I know a lot of you guys have guns. I know a lot of you have had guns for a long time and you have had basic safety training, usage training, and you know how to use your gun and you're accurate with it. And some of you are complete novices. But I'll tell you what, whether you've been using firearms your entire life or you're just starting to learn now, there is no such thing as too much training, especially when it comes to, for training to deal with a potentially deadly situation. If you carry that gun for defense or you keep a gun in your home for defense, you need to know how to use it for defense, not just target shooting. And that's why I recommend you check out Fortress Self-Defense. They have awesome training with an awesome cadre of, inspector, uh, of instructors that I think you would really uh, do well to go out and get some training. The next time you're thinking, which is the next gun that I buy? Maybe before you buy some gun, you buy a firearms training course. Check out Fortress Self-Defense, and if you have a large group, they will even travel to you and set up training at your chosen location rather than going to their location up in Ohio. Uh, next up today, the Berkey guy at Directive 21. I'll tell you what, you, one thing you really need to have is fresh, clean water, and if you don't have that, you're in a hard way. Whether that's for emergency uses or for getting toxins out of your water for day-to-day -day use, I can't recommend a better system than the Berkey system, and I would recommend you get your Berkey system from Directive21.com. Jeff Gleason over there is going to take great care of you. I was just a guest on his radio show, and he was asking me a little bit about business. And what I said is, Jeff, the reason you're successful is if someone uh, says you're not taking care of their, your customers, you'll knock them over because you're always going to take care of your customers. That's the kind of guy he is, and that's why I love having him as a sponsor. Berkey water filtration systems are definitely something you should look at for your long-term sustainability. Ability. And if you're going to get one, get one from one of the top resellers that there is in North America. Jeff Gleason, the Berkey guy, again at Directive21.com. Uh, next up today, uh, I asked to make today's show quick, so I'm going to skip you know some of it. But I do want to remind you guys about the Members Brigade. Uh, I come out and I do this show every single day. 
Uh, I miss it once in a while, like this weekend coming up, but basically this show's here. You heard me do it through uh, an illness where I had laryngitis. You, you can still hear, by the end of today's show, you'll hear a difference in my voice. I'm still fighting it. I bring it every day. And I do that because I believe sharing this information is important. And I do this as my full-time living. And the way I support that is through my members' brigade. In return... I provide you a definite financial return on your investment. If you're buying things in the prepper industry, if you're buying seeds, if you're doing any of that, if you like to read ebooks, if you're looking for good additional content, there is way more worth than $50 of, of value a year in the members brigade. And what it really comes out to is 10 or 20 cents an episode. Actually, if you do it annually with a $50 a year, it's 18 cents an episode. So when you get done with today's show, if you think that was worth 20 cents, Consider joining the Member Support Brigade. And with that, let's go ahead and get into what we have to talk about. My first subject is something I really wish I didn't have to do today. Um, there is, but, but I've done so much to help these people. And I have done so much to spread goodwill around their name. And um, I have done so much. I mean, I looked at my analytics when I found this out. Going back over time and looked at outbound links to their websites, their YouTube channel. And between the day I started the Survival Podcast in, in June of 2008 and today, I have sent no less than 100,000 unique visitors to go look at the material uh, and the websites of the Dervais family in Southern California. Uh, over that time, I had numerous requests to interview Jules Dervais, and I sent numerous requests to Dervais and his family asking for an interview. I was either ignored or I was responded to with, finally, that basically they didn't find the survival podcast congruent with their future plans, which meant their hippie political bullshit prevented them from being able to share their ideals on my show. While I mentioned that, I never held it against them. I continued to keep links to their website on the Survival Podcast. We gave them their own forum on the Survival Podcast forums. They had a child board in the Agriculture Forum. I'm saying we did a lot to help these people. And because of that, it's incumbent upon me now to take back the goodwill that I've given them for what they're doing, not to me, but to you and everybody in the Homestead community. These people have decided that they own the word Urban, urban homestead, urban homesteading, and several other terms. And of course they're already saying that people are just out to hurt them and they're, they're not sending cease and desist. So I want to read to you the letter that they're sending to mom and pop bloggers all over the internet. I want to read parts of it to you. You can read the entire letter yourself. I don't want to make the whole show today bash the Dervaises, but this letter comes to, to you and it says, To whom it may concern. This notice is to inform you of important matters regarding the published works and or brand names of Jules Dervais and the Dervais Institute. We are extremely supportive members of our online community, fans of our websites, writing and photographs, and others who help spread information regarding sustainable living. However, we must also guard against the unauthorized use or exploitation of our intellectual property for commercial gain. From the beginning, our work was published online and in other media has been copyrighted and trademarked. We have now secured registered trademarks for certain unique names and images. By protecting our intellectual property, we are better able to ensure that our work is presented accurately and contributes to our sustainable living projects and educational initiatives. And it goes on and on with a bunch of legalese bullshit, and it actually references things that I would consider to be legitimate intellectual property they should be protecting, like people that directly quote their website. So people that would cut and paste a paragraph out of their website should quote it and cite it. I think that's great. I have no problem. 
uh, with that or using their photo- photography. This is where it goes off into the realm. And the only word I have for this is acting like a bunch of douchebags. And I'm sorry if that offends anybody, but I cannot think of a better adjective. I am reading from the Dervais' own letter now. In addition, Dervais Institute owns numerous trademarks which should be properly acknowledged if used. These protected names and images include the following registered trademark. Urban Homestead. Urban Homesteading. Path to Freedom. I might give them that one. Um, Grow the Future. My hairy butt on that one. Homegrown Revolution. I might not even have a problem with that one. Um, Freedom Gardens and Little Homestead in the City. Definitely, I see no problem with Little Homestead in the City. But folks, Urban Homestead? Do you know that um, several states have an Urban Homestead Act? Just just for one example. Uh, and Urban Homesteading. So let me, let me go back to the letter before I give you any more commentary. If you use one of these phrases, it is... It is not specifically to identify products or services from the Dervais Institute, then it would be proper to use a generic term to replace registered trademark you are using. For example, when discussing general homesteading or other people's projects, they should be referred to with terms such as modern homesteading or urban sustainability projects or similar descriptions. So bloggers, you no longer have the right to use urban homestead unless when using the phrase listed above to refer to the works of the Dervais Institute, that means whenever you say urban homestead on your blog, you must be talking about them and proper trademark usage should include a proper trademark notice, which is a little circle with the R, use the protected phrase in all capital letters and note in close proximity the term is a protected trademark of the Dervais Institute. So bloggers all over the internet The Jules Dervais, who's supposed to stand for freedom, now says you do not have a right to use the word urban homestead without citing him as the source. Now, a business tip, how the universe works. The universe delivers onto you exactly what you deliver onto it. It comes back to you tenfold. This is a law. This is a rule. You cannot violate it. It will happen. And recently, someone emailed me and said, Jack, these people are ripping you off. And they sent me a blog of a guy that's just running a small blog, and he's calling it Modern Survivalism something. I don't remember what blog it is. I'd give the guy a link today if I could find it in the, in the, in the email exchange. If I can find it, I'll give him a link. I'll send him all the goodwill in the world. But this individual that emailed me felt that the term Modern Survivalism should belong to the Survival Podcast and me. And actually, I would feel that I'd have a better claim to trademark the term modern survivalism than the Dervaises do urban homesteading. I've been cited in numerous media sources as the person that coined the phrase. Judge Andrew Napolitano on Fox News said I was the face of modern survival, the modern survival movement. Um, when I started the show, I wanted an all-encompassing term to describe what we do here, and I wanted something that wasn't being commonly used elsewhere. So I ran a Google search for, quote, modern survivalism, close quote, which looks for an exact match. In June of 2008, there were exactly zero usages of the term, at least in the Google index. Will I ever trademark the term? Hell no. Why? Because I believe in what I do, and I believe in my message, And that's why my listeners and my sponsors support me. How does this relate to the Dervais family? Well, I told this individual that doing anything like trying to trademark a general term when you built your entire life on the Internet and you built everything for viral marketing and you shared a common value with your audience would be business-level suicide. And I think he got it, and he said, yeah, I realize that now. Now, would it be nice if this guy with this blog would, you know, at least have a link to the Survival Podcast in his blog role? 
since you know dadgone well, he he's probably heard me use that term a million times, and he probably knows of my work. Yeah, but if he doesn't, I don't really care. Plain and simple. Because the reality is, that term has become so used now due to my marketing of it, that he may have heard it from a completely different source, and he have, may have no idea what he's doing. It's the English language. It's not something that deserves to be intellectually captive. In fact, I actually am thinking about trademarking the term now. If I could find an attorney out there that listens to the show to maybe do the work for free, trademarking the term modern survival and modern survivalism, and then publicly stating that anybody is allowed to use it any way that they choose at any time to prevent some other ass clown from doing something like this with it. Because that's what I believe. You see, in spite of the fact that their hippie political bullshit prevented them from coming on the show, the reason I continue to support them is because we shared a common value, a belief that genetically modified food and patenting life forms was wrong. Now they believe they can patent a word. They have turned back on their value. And now they're crying and they're saying they're being mischaracterized. Again, the letter I read you is their case that they're not doing anything wrong. So I will provide a link to you uh, for you to that letter. I would suggest that any statements you see by these people, maybe you consider taking a screenshot of, because they may be trying to lie about what they've said in the first place in the future. This gets worse, though. Someone gave me a link uh, where they sent a DMCA complaint to Google uh, because of a link on Google to an Amazon page. And that Amazon page is a book written in 2008 by Kelly Korn called The Urban Homestead. The Dervais family has petitioned Google to remove their indexing of an Amazon.com page because the page has a book on it called The Urban Homestead, Your Guide to Self-Sufficient Living in the Heart of the City, uh, Process Self-Reliance Series, paperback by Kelly Korn. So they're directly attacking Kelly Korn, who wrote this book called The Urban Homestead. That tells you the level of what, that tells you what this is really about. It's not about protecting the term from evil corporate interests. It's about greed. It's about they can't stand to see somebody else using a term that they think they own to do something positive. So, this is my suggestion. Instead of getting all mad about it, if you're a friend on Facebook, unfriend them. If you have a blog, post a blog about what happened, provide links to proof of what these people are doing, and let other people know. If you've given them goodwill like I have, take it back. Unless you think what they're doing is fine, then do whatever you wish with it. But if you think what they're doing is wrong, let's make the biggest statement we possibly can. Today I'm going to buy a copy of The Urban Homestead by Kelly Korn on Amazon. I'm going to provide a link in today's show notes. I will not use my affiliate link to do this. There will be no affiliate link when I give you the link to Amazon.com for The Urban Homestead. I want no profit from this. I want you to go to Amazon.com today, and I want you to buy a copy of The Urban Homestead. And if anybody can get me an email address or some way to contact the author, again, Kelly Korn, C-O-Y-N-E, Coin Korn, I know how to say that. And uh, there's actually two authors. The other one is Eric Eric Kutzen. Uh, I want to buy a copy of this book, and I want everybody out there to buy a copy of this book. And let's find a way to contact the author and let them know we're buying their book because we support what they're doing, and we don't support the way that they've been attacked. How about that? And with that, I'm going to let that go. Um, and I'm not, you're not going to hear a lot about the Dervaises from me ever again. I'm not going to go on a life quest to make these people miserable. But I just thought you should know what these people have done since I have recommended them so highly. When I first heard what they did, I literally wanted to throw up 
because I felt like I did a disservice to you, the audience, by speaking so highly of these people and being so wrong. I apologize to you, my audience, for endorsing these people. Um, I, I owe you better. I don't know if there was any way that I could have seen anything, but honestly, when I got their bullshit letter about how our objectives did not coincide, I should have pulled the plug then. And um, I just believed in what they were doing at the higher level enough to continue to support them. And I was wrong. Again, I apologize to you, the audience, for that. All right, let's move on to something um, disturbing, maybe equally or, or more disturbing. Uh, this is something I was going to do on the next email show, but I can't wait to do it. I, I need you guys to know about this today, just to know how bad things are with our food supply in the world. I'm going to do this one fast because I want to go ahead and get to your calls for the rest of the show. But I want you to know that there are companies in China right now that are making rice out of plastic and selling it to people to eat. Uh, I'm going to read this to you from Ross Story. Actually, this is on disinfo.com. China produces rice made from plastic. China his, China's history of food safety is a rocky one. But even in the annals of robbery and abuse, this will go down in infamy. Various reports in Singapore media have said that Chinese companies are mass-producing fake rice made in part out of plastic, according to one online publication, Very Vietnam. The rice is made by mixing potatoes, sweet potatoes, and plastic. The potatoes are first formed into the shape of rice grains. Industrial synthetic resins are then added to the mix. The rice reportedly stays hard even after being cooked. The Korean language weekly Hong Kong reported the fake rice is being sold in the Chinese town of Taoyuan and Sakshini province. So to deal with rice shortages, the Chinese have decided to make rice out of plastic. I read another article somewhere I can't find right now, but basically it said that if you ate a bowl of rice, a, a bowl of rice twice a day um, of this type of rice, uh, it would equivalently be like eating a plastic bag a day. And in China, folks, rice is their bread. They eat it as a staple. They eat it far more than we do. Um, if there is no other alarm that we need to be concerned about our food supply, that one should be going off. Ding, 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 ding. There's a problem. I hope that gives you a sense of urgency with taking control of your food supply. Now let's go ahead and take the, uh, the long-promised first call. Hi, Jack. Bill in Central Texas, just south of you a couple hours. Um, you've gotten me excited about the idea about using the vertical space in my backyard. Uh, I've decided that I want to try and go with raspberries on the, a section of fence I have that gets good afternoon sun. Uh, my fence is about four feet high and about 18 feet long. Is there another berry that I can grow with the raspberries that will get along with it that won't cross-pollinate? Thanks, Jack. Love what you're doing, brother. Actually, it's a real easy one. You can grow any berry you want there. Um, a natural um, counterpart would maybe be blackberry. Uh, you may even consider joining, growing just all raspberries of several different kinds to extend your season. For instance, you could grow an early-season floricane raspberry, a late-season floricane raspberry, and an, er, uh, an ever-bearing primocane raspberry. And... What I mean by floricane and, and, and uh, primocane is most raspberries produce fruit on what's called the floricane. The floricane is a second-year cane. So the first year the cane grows, and then you, you prune the, the tips around it, and then the second year it sends out fruiting tips, and it fruits. And then on that, at the end of that year you cut that cane off at the ground, and then you train, you know, and of course the, the, during that same year when that cane was fruiting, new canes were growing, 
And those canes now become your second-year canes and so on and so on. So it takes two years to get your first crop, and then you get a crop every year, and you just remove your third-year canes, tie up your second-year canes, and then as the second-year canes pr produce fruit, the, the new first-year canes are coming up in the following season. Um, so that's a typical raspberry. Primacane raspberries, and blackberries, they have these as well, produce fruit on first-year canes. So one thing you can do with them is just cut them to the ground every year, and every year they'll come up and produce fruit late in the season. The difference is, unlike floricanes that will produce relatively early in the season and produce one crop, your primacanes, once they start producing, will keep producing until frost, which is fairly late in the year here in Texas. So if you took three varieties, an early flora, a mid flora, and a, and a, and a prima, you would be able to have raspberries from about June through frost. And maybe you put two of each or something like that. The big thing I want you to understand though, the cross-pollination thing. The only time you care about cross-pollination is if you're saving seed. Uh, for instance, with vegetables. You never want two completely different types of squash crossing, like two, two uh, C. maxima squashes, the pumpkin varieties. Let's say a long neck pumpkin and a butternut squash. If those cross, the, the hybrid seed produces kind of a franken-squash. But if they cross and all you're doing is eating the fruit from this year, it, you don't, you'll never know that, that that's what happened. So it's only with seed saving that you care. Now, when you reproduce raspberry and blackberry and blueberry and things like that, you don't generally reproduce from seed. You re reproduce from root cuttings or from uh, sprouting roots onto an existing cane. Uh, so there is absolutely no issue there with cross-pollination. So if you want to grow five different kinds of blackberries, blackberries and raspberries, or any other berry that fits in that space well for you, that can be trained into that vertical space, you can go nuts with it and not have to worry at all. Um, so whatever berries you want, go nuts with them and grow them, and uh, good luck with that project. Let's go ahead and take the next call. Hey, Jack, it's Dan from the frozen tundra of Minnesota, and i got a question for you regarding banking and financing. So I always thought if you were going to start a bank, you'd have to have millions of dollars, uh, or at least investors with millions of dollars to get a bank started and be able to loan money. But uh, it sounds like basically I could start a bank out of my living room, and uh, people that needed loans and stuff like that, basically I could make money and loan money and even come up with my own interest rate. I mean, if everybody else is at uh, 5%, maybe I could undercut them at 4.5%. Now, I haven't looked up any of this or researched any of this, but I've uh, read uh, your material and uh, listened to your podcast. I'm just wondering, is it really that easy that you just start a bank up out of your living room and loan money and create money and start your own bank that way? That's my question for you. Thanks. By the way, love the podcast. It's great. Actually, the answer is the complete and affirmative no. It's not that easy to start up a bank. Everything in my work, especially, and what he's really talking about is my book, oh, that's available at trtam.com. That's the Real Truth of Money, uh, Real Truth About Money website. Again, trtam.com. You'll find a book you can download there for free, and it talks about the monetary system, and it also goes into the banking system, how banks literally create money out of thin air. Because they get the money from the Fed for a discounted rate of a quarter percent or, or less. 
then they loan it to you at an interest rate of, let's say, 5%. But when they loan it to you, they actually keep the money they already got from the Fed. They just make a journal entry and loan it out to you, and it's called fractional reserve banking. If you want to know more, read the book. I can't go deep into it today and keep the show at the right length of time. But, you know, well, if the banks can do that, then why can't Jack just set up Jack's bank right out of my living room, phone up the Fed and get some money? Because, one, they won't give it to me. Two, the cost of entry is extremely high. To be a bank, you have to participate for, and for one thing, federal deposit insurance. Uh, 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 and if you don't do the FDIC thing, can't be a bank. Well, yeah, you have to, you have to fund that. The real issue, though, here is access to the money. And this is why the, the United States of America is no longer a republic. A republic. It is a financial uh, empire. Because depending on what layer you are in the system depends on your access to the money. And if you're very high up in the pyramid, if you're at the investment banking layer, the banking layer, your access to the money is easy and free. Or so low cost that it doesn't matter. And if you're anywhere else, your access is severely limited and expensive. And there's some great videos on this by a guy, I think he's from Canada actually, or he posts on a Canadian blog. And uh, it's a very good explanation of this. I'll put those videos in today's show notes. You can watch them. But no, you can't. I've had a list of questions from a lot of people. It's kind of a weird question. But since I got it from so many people, I decided to do it on the air. No, you can't just set up a bank. And in spite of the fact that the banks can do everything I claim, and you can go find all kinds of documentation from our own Federal Reserve and the banks themselves that say that's how they operate, no, you don't get to operate that way. I think it's probably good that we don't get to operate that way because I don't really want them operating the way they do either. I think this fra fractional reserve nonsense needs to go away and we need a true public currency, uh, which means that the currency is not controlled by the banks at all. It's controlled by the people. And the reason I say that is I want you to think about it this way, because I've been called on this a bunch. And I don't think people understand how it should be a free market. Yeah, it should be a free market. For the market to be free, the currency has to be equivalent for all. It's like playing a basketball game, but in this game there's a million basketball goals and millions of people on the court and everybody can shoot at the basket. And if you score a point, you score a point. If you don't score a point, you don't score a point. Somebody swats your ball down because they're competing with you, you don't get that point. But the points are neutral. The points are completely neutral and there's rules to the game. That's how, that's how a free market would work. Money would be like points. And you could actually build your own basketball goal and shoot at it as many times as you want by creating a new store of value in an economy. And the currency would expand as the economy expanded. And if enough people failed and the economy contracted, the currency would contract. And it would follow the economy back and forth where the money would actually be based on the output of the economy. Maybe for those of you that think we should have a private gold standard and let the banks compete for money, maybe that makes a little bit more sense than the way I've explained it before. But uh, no, man, sorry, can't set up your own bank. If you want to know more about my thoughts on the currency system, trtam.com. Again, trtam.com, and you click on the book and download a free copy. Still in beta, though, by the way. There are some errors in it. I'm working on getting those polished up. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Dale from Pennsylvania again. Um, I uh, am looking at uh, getting a house, buying a new house, and the place we're looking at uh, has about an acre uh, that's just in grass right now. It's a yard, and uh, we want to turn that into pasture for our milk cow. And uh, what I'm wondering is what you would do to that to get it to the state where it would be good for pasture because this yard grass, from what I understand, is not going to 
hold up too well under grazing, even if we do rotational grazing, which is what we would be doing. Uh, so I don't know if uh, maybe overseeding with some pasture grass would be a good idea, maybe some mulching in there. I was wondering what your thoughts on that were. Thanks a lot. Bye. Now, first, let me say, I don't know that I'd recommend a cow on an acre of ground. You can do it. There's no doubt about it. You can do it. But um, you're going to have to buy an awful lot of supplemental feed. And you're going to have to be really cautious with rotation of that cow on that piece of land. And it's probably going to end up being the most expensive milk you could ever purchase, period. You may do better with a small milking animal like a goat or two. Now, the thing about goats is you're not going to have a goat. Now, you can, but you really shouldn't. Goats are such social creatures, they just kind of need companionship. So... Um, you, if you like milk, uh, goat milk, you could maybe have a pair of goats on that land, and they're probably going to be a lot easier on it. They will, at times, eat uh, grazing down to the dirt, uh, and, and cut it off so low, they're more damaging in large numbers. But in small numbers, if rotated off it and given some supplemental feed, they don't do that. Uh, the, the things that you see goats do to land is done because they are kept in one place too long. So rotational grazing, a paddock approach is is the way to go. But I just, I wouldn't recommend trying to support a cow on one acre. And I think most people that have any ranching background would agree. Um, now again, you can feed them supplementally and things like that and treat them more like a conventional milk cow, like a dairy cow would be treated, more confined and only put out into the pastures maybe. I mean, if you broke it up into four quarter acre paddocks, and the cow was in paddock one for a day or two, and then taken out of that paddock and back into a confined space, and then go into paddock two for a couple days, and then back to kind of its little area, and then three, and then back, and then four, and then back. And it's only about two days at a time, and it's also spending two days completely resting all the land. Maybe you could pull that off, but that's not going to be really free-range you know, uh, effect. And you're going to have to, again, you're going to have to supply a lot of supplemental feed for a cow on that small of a piece of land. Now, as far as what to plant, you know, Peaceful Valley Farms has a tremendous selection of, of uh, uh, pasture uh, crops, cover crops, uh, things like that, and a good quality mix and growing different stuff at different times of year, winter and, and summer. Uh, there's, there's just tons of things you could grow. Uh, alfalfa, clover, uh, triticale. There's just a, a, just a tremendous variety of what you could do uh, pasture-wise. I'd submit to you, though, that on an acre, you could probably do fairly well with a paddock concept of chickens and probably raise enough chickens to eat two or three chickens a month and almost provide them no supplemental feed with an acre using the same types of uh, approach. I just don't think that you're going to find the best use of your land um a milk cow. If you had 20 acres and you wanted to put one or two cows on 20 acres with a paddock approach and you maybe set up five acres of it into paddocks and you ra rotated the cattle uh, to each paddock of an acre or more and give them, a, and you know, basically watch, it's not about how many days, it's watch the consumption level and when they consume 30 to 40 percent of the available browse, then move them to the next paddock and give it time to recover. That would That would work, you know, with a minimal amount of supplemental feed at certain times of the year. Um, but I just don't think you have enough land to do a, ca a cow and do the cow justice. 
if you're going to have a cow, it's going to be far more confined than it sounds like you want. I don't really have a problem with that, you know, but if you look at the output of milk from one cow on that small piece of land, that land could probably do a lot more for you used a little bit differently. Just my thoughts, but uh, just a good solid uh, winter-summer pasture mix rotation and maybe adding in some additional things like cow pee in the uh, in the summer and winter pee in the uh, in the winter mixes and things like that would go a long way toward improving the land. Uh, but again, I, I just think you're kind of on too small a piece of land. And it sounds really cool. And it sounds like a great thing to do. But I think that there are so many other ways to use that land that long-term you'd be happier with. Sorry, I'm not more positive for you. And again, if you want to do it, you can. Just understand the limitations I just gave you. Let's go ahead and take the next call. Hey, Jack. It's Carson from Canada here, listening to episode 596. I'm at the end where the gentleman called in with his rant about gold. Uh, being money was his claim. Um, allow me to quote from... What I hear whenever I'm listening to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation giving uh, stock market numbers. And I'm pretty sure it's the same pretty much everywhere. And now to the commodities. Gold is up or down, whatever. Gold is always the first thing they list in the commodities. It's not listed whenever they're talking about the currencies. It's a commodity, like you said. And the stock market is the best place we can look to for that being the case. So obviously, a whole lot of brilliant people have decided that gold is truly a commodity and not money. And other brilliant people can disagree. But hey, let's face it, just because someone's brilliant doesn't mean they're right. Look at a lot of the Nazis that killed a lot of people. A lot of them were brilliant people. Weren't very good, were they? Now, I'm not saying that the people that say that gold is money are equivalent to that, just given an example that being brilliant doesn't necessarily mean jack squat about being right. Hope you have a great one. Oh, uh, sorry if you take offense to me saying jack squat. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you don't, so hence the sarcasm. Have a good one. Bye. I think you've got a point. No, I'm not offended by uh, the terms used at all. Uh, it's kind of funny, actually. Um, but, yeah, I mean, first of all, whenever I hear this argument that only gold is money, I ask the person that says it, well, how much is gold worth today? And then they'll say, you know, $1,280, $1,407, whatever it is. <laughs> and then I just laugh. And I just, like, how can you not understand this? The entire relative value to gold is is based on currency valuation at any given point in time. Does this mean I'm anti-gold? For God's sakes, people, don't think I'm anti-gold. I tell you all the time, make silver and gold part of your long-term investment portfolio. Make it part of your insurance against a faltering economy. But understand, it's just a thing. It's just a, it's a, it is a, of course it's a commodity. In fact, I'll tell you what, money is a commodity. The U.S. dollar is a commodity. It's traded as a commodity in Forex, a foreign exchange. People literally have accounts where they say, okay, the dollar will weaken against the euro today. And they know that's going to happen. So they take a million dollars and convert it to euros at 8 a.m. And then the dollar weakens by a tenth of a point or whatever. 
But that tenth of a point equals a difference of, let's say, $50,000 for that one day. And at the end of the day, they convert the euros back to dollars. But why do they go back to the dollar? Because that's the, that's the currency they spend. Or then they can convert the dollar to something else and spend it in another market. But it's all about commodities. Here's the thing. I keep saying this, and people just, it's like you don't want to get it because you've been so brainwashed by the bald guy on TV telling you only gold is money and buy more gold, not because he thinks that it's a good idea to secure your future, but because the more gold you buy, the more money they make. Okay? And I'm not putting him down overall. I'm just saying, and you guys that watch Fox News know who I'm talking about. I said a bald guy, and he's not the only one. There's tons of them out there. But their goal is just to sell you as much gold as they can possibly sell you. And what do they want in return for it? Your worthless dollars. Got to think about that. All I'm saying, you don't put all your eggs in one basket, not even a golden basket. You keep your eggs diversified. That means there's a point for cash, there's a point for investments, there's a point for gold, there's a point for silver. But in the end, it's all just a commodity. The money is not the paper, it's not the gold, it's not the silver, it's not the tally stick. It's not the ammunition you're bartering or the pack of cigarettes. The money is the agreement society places that any given commodity has a relative value to another commodity. My agreement with you and your agreement with me constitutes the actual currency. Our government requiring you to use tax to pay them tax in US dollars and saying they back the currency creates a massive agreement which creates value in the US dollar. But the day that we decide that agreement fails or that we don't have as much confidence the value of the dollar either collapses or goes down. And the more confident we are and the rest of the world is in that agreement, the stronger the dollar becomes. It's all flotational, it's all relative, and even if we used gold, if we were using gold to buy rice, the value of gold comparative to rice is going to go up and down on any given day based on the availability of rice and the availability of gold. And anybody that tells you anything else is either wrong or full of shit. And most of them are not full of shit. They're just wrong. They believe it just like you do. They're not lying to you because they don't know they're wrong. They really believe their own dogma. Now, is gold a store of value? Yes, for God's sakes. Please don't email me and say, but Jack, gold has been a store of value for thousands of years. I am completely aware of this fact. That's why I recommend it as part of your portfolio. But if you have a religious level... Um, affiliation with gold, you are so misguided and you are going to make mistakes and sooner or later in the ebbs and flows of things, you're going to get hurt. Because if you put all your eggs in one basket, no matter how well it does for a period of time, sooner or later, everything comes in rotation and every commodity takes a beating. Diversification is not what your financial liar, oh, I'm an advisor, tells you. It's not 20 different mutual funds that are all denominated in dollars and in just different classes of investment within stocks and bonds. That's a single investment. Diversification is gold. It's silver. It's your home. It's your tools. It's your preps. It's your stocks. It's your cash. It's holding things denominated in something other than dollars, like euros or, or any other currency that's out there. Diversification means you are in a completely different style of investment. 
Gold should be one, but if it's the only one, when you get your ass kicked, don't cry to me. I've said it enough. Let's go ahead and take the next call. Good call, by the way, from Carson. Hi, Jack. This is Chris from Cincinnati. I've been listening to your show for a while. First off, I want to say I really appreciate everything that you're doing. It's very important to all of us. Um, moving on from there, you may have covered us in a, a different show, and I may not have just uh, looked at that specific episode. What my question is is about the S510 bill and or now called the H.R. 2751, uh, last I had heard of it. Um, it was the uh, FDA's Food Modernization Act, and uh, the bill kind of tied to Monsanto. And I was kind of curious. I've, uh, I've seen some blogs on it and some information, um, you know, some scuttlebutt about how horrible it is and how it's going to take out small farmers and your own personal gardens. And I've also heard uh, the other way around that that's kind of extreme kind of see what your take is on this and uh, what information you might have on that as well. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. Take care. Oh, my God. And I don't want the caller to take this the wrong way because you're just asking a question, and if I really didn't want to answer it, I wouldn't do it again. But, oh, my God. Senate Bill 510, the bill that won't go away even though it's not a bill anymore. Senate Bill 510 and its House counterpart were passed by the United States Congress in December and signed into law by the President of the United States of America. This thing is now law. Okay? It is a law. And yet no one has come and pulled your tomato plants out of your backyard, and no one has shut down the Seed Savers Exchange or Johnny Max's Free Seed Exchange. No one has come out and said that you can't go to the store and buy an heirloom variety seed, and you know why? Because it doesn't say anything about that at all in that law. First thing that you need to understand about this law, I am opposed to it, I don't like it, I think it stinks, and I wish it wasn't there, and that applies to 90% of all laws that our Congress passes. They keep passing more and more regulation, I want less and less. So of course I'm opposed to it for a ton of valid reasons. So nothing I say from here should be construed as my support of this law. But the second thing you need to understand is that about 90% of the power inside this law existed before the law was passed. What happened was they had the power in this department and this department and that department and that department. And the power was consolidated to a single department supposedly to save the taxpayers money. I find this hypocritical, but that means that 90% of what's in this bill, the government already had the power to do. So we just need to forget about that being some new oppressive totalitarian thing because whatever you were worried about them doing, they could have already done. Next, a Democrat from the state of Montana named John Tester uh, proposed and had ratified an amendment called the Tester Amendment. This exempted any farm or food production entity of any kind that was doing less than $500,000 in volume a year from the bill. So if you produce less than $500,000, half a million dollars a year of revenue, in fact, it's not. it's, it's even better than that. If over three years your average is less than half a million, you're exempt. Now, last time I checked, the average home gardener growing tomatoes in his backyard wasn't growing a half a million dollars worth of tomatoes. The tester amendment alone, and there's this bloggers, well, supposedly, supposedly my ass, it's in concrete black and white, go read it. All these people talking about this bill, have you read the bill? Have you read the amendments? And the answer is freaking no. They're either bullshitting you to sell you a seed bank, 
or they're wrong. And you can choose which one to believe about anybody telling you this stuff. And I think most are not lying to you. Again, just like the gold thing, they're just wrong. What is, what is the big change in this bill? The big change in this bill says that if a jalapeno is grown in Mexico and shipped to a Kroger in Philadelphia and we end up with somebody getting hepatitis from it, which happened in the past, that the, the FDA should be able to look at that jalapeno and trace it directly back to exactly the farm and processing and shipping facilities it went through all the way back to Mexico. So that instead of recalling all the jalapenos, they can just take out the jalapenos that came through that channel or from that source, and they can quickly find and, and, and fix the problem. Now, when this bill was first written, it would have applied to any farm. And I was vehemently opposed to it. Because why does Farmer Brown need to, to spend money and resources to track the head of cabbage that he sells directly to you? If you get sick, you know where it came from. If he goes down to the farmer's market and sells, if you get sick, we know where it came from. These small and, and, and people running these small farms and growing organically and what have you, they don't have these problems. It doesn't happen. We can't find where it happens. Because a small level production and doing things the way that organic growers do just kind of eliminates the entire possibility in the first place. Or makes it very rare. You're more likely to be eaten by a tar tiger shark when swimming off the coast of Hawaii. And again, if it happens with a small producer, tracking it's easy. So when John Tester, who I disagree with on many, many things, but agreed with on this, proposed this amendment, I published a thank you to him on my blog, which got ungodly resistance from the audience. But, like I said, when everybody was screaming and yelling about how this thing was going to destroy home gardening and make your home garden illegal, that was the level this was taken to by hypesters. I said, it's bullshit, it'll pass, no one will come take your garden away, And they're going to fall back too, but now they could if they wanted to. For all the failings that ass clowns like Barack Obama and Harry Reid, and I'll say it John Boehner, have, for all of their failings, they don't really give a damn if you grow a tomato, trade it with your neighbor, or save a seed. And anybody that links this bill to that level of productivity, again, is bullshitting you or they are wrong. Please Let this go. It's a battle we never could have won because it was that we had a lame duck Congress passing it on the way out. There are so many more important things we need to be fighting right now than worrying about a bill that doesn't affect any of the people that really feel like they're upset about it. That's the last time I'm going to talk about this. I am not going to talk about this thing ever again. It is a closed issue for me. All right, let's go ahead and take the next call. Hey, Jack, it's Casey out here on the Eastern Shore of Virginia. Um, just asking a question about um, your bug-out vehicle. If uh, you know, We talk about storing gas and stuff like that, but what about the other things cars and vehicles need, like spark plugs, oil? Um, how are you going to change your oil? Uh, is there any way to clean dirty oil so you can use it again? Things like that. Um, just thought it might be a good topic to discuss. Thanks for everything you do. Well, first let me tell you what I do, and then... I'll tell you why we should probably look at this a little bit differently than the way you're asking it. And to be fair to you, the way that most people look at it when they start thinking about long-term use of their vehicle in a shitted defense scenario. What I do is I keep enough oil and filters on hand, along with other parts like fan belts and hoses and things like that, um, 
where I could do about four oil changes for every oil changes for every vehicle. And since that stuff basically stores forever, and I'm not a even though I'm a mechanic and I could do my own oil changes, the the fact that you know like an, an average vehicle I can pull in and get an oil change done for thirty bucks, uh, and it'll be done in five minutes, it'll be done right, that sort of thing. And even like my truck, my Ford, it costs like seventy eight bucks to get an oil change in because it uses almost four gallons of oil. So like for the truck to do four oil changes, we have to store sixteen gallons of oil just for the Ford truck. I keep that stuff and it's always available. And I never run out of it. And that oil is going to be as good as long as oil can be good sealed up in there. We also keep things like antifreeze. And folks, on antifreeze, I'm going to make a, a, a very, very sincere request from you today. When you buy antifreeze, you can buy what's considered an environmentally friendly antifreeze. But the big thing is you can buy antifreeze that is not harmful to cats and, and dogs because they use a bittering agent. If you've ever uh, seen, you know, Typical commercial antifreeze, if you touch your finger to it and taste it, it tastes sweet like Kool-Aid. And um, animals will, will drink it up like like mad. I think most of the consumer-level antifreeze um, that you can get today at the stores, and when you're buying like a couple gallons of it or more, it actually has this bittering agent now. But when you go to big shops, uh, the stuff they can buy in 50-gallon drums still comes without the bittering agent. I would like to sincerely request whenever you're purchasing your own or having a coolant ch uh, change that you request either environmentally friendly or bittered antifreeze. Um, about three years ago, I know this is going off to the side, but I just have to say it's about three and a half years ago, we had a cat that the, the family viewed as a part of the family, like we view all our animals, named Victor. And um, Victor found some antifreeze somewhere and consumed it and had his kidneys destroyed to where on the uh, x-rays at the emergency veterinary place, his kidneys were about four times the size they were supposed to be. And we ended up with no choice other than to put him to sleep. And we lost uh, an animal that we loved. And the doctor told us that basically a cat could literally walk through a puddle and lick its paws and that would be enough to do that type of damage to them. Um, he came home uh, in the middle of the night because he was an outside cat And he laid on our front porch um, dying overnight because we didn't know he was there. Had we found him earlier, maybe he could have been saved. But odds are it probably still was going to be too late. I'm not sure if this was an accident or someone intentionally killed him. I actually think that one of our neighbors killed him. And um, if I was sure of it, I would have knocked his teeth out of his mouth. But I wasn't, so I had to let it be. Unfortunately, he's moved out by now. But please, when it comes to antifreeze, consider the fact that it's irresponsible to use a substance that's deadly poison that tastes like Kool-Aid, including because children might drink it. If you've ever looked at it, all right, it looks like a fluorescent Kool-Aid. And if you hand a glass to an average toddler, they'd probably drink it right down. So please don't do that. So anyway, back to the question. Um, antifreeze and, and all the basic service materials we have. They say, well, four oil changes, what does that do for you? Well, routine maintenance for most vehicles, uh, they say every 3,000 miles. Synthetic, which I use for like the, the Jetta diesel and all, has a 10,000 mile uh, range. So uh, with the Jetta, for instance, four oil changes means I could put um, 40,000 miles on the vehicle. Even if I was going to do the 3,000 mile thing, and let's, stretching to seven is no big deal. If I was going to do the, uh, the, uh, the, the 3,000 thing, it's 12,000 miles on a typical, uh, 3,000 mile between oil change vehicle. So, well, what about, you know, long term shit at the fan? I, I got a question for you. Where are you going to get the gasoline? 
See, here's the thing. We need to realize that should the shit at the fan to the level where it's hard to get an oil filter and oil for your car, you're not going to be able to get fuel either. And that means that the days of running around every day and putting 12,000 or 20,000 miles a year on your vehicle are over. You'll be lucky to put a couple hundred miles a month on. You'll only use a vehicle if you absolutely have to until such time as we gain recovery. And we can then at least get basic things again. Um, I'm not saying not to store these things. As I told you, we do. But we have three vehicles and enough to maintain them through four oil changes each. Full set of belts uh, and coolant and transmission fluid and all that other stuff. And uh, tools and, and, and uh, maintenance manuals for them. And I find that to be enough just because I know that if the shit hits the fan that bad, we're not going to be joyriding. And I think I've seen a lot of people put too much thought into this because, again, if you can't even get a couple quarts of oil to change your oil, you ain't going to be getting a couple gallons of gasoline or diesel fuel to put in the tank. Um, as far as cleaning oil, yeah, it can be done. It's never going to be what it was, but it can definitely be filtered and um made better than it was before, and you can certainly flush out and recycle um, filters. And that's the big thing. It's more important that you change your filter than the oil itself, especially, you know, uh, long term. You could literally, if you wanted to extend this, now, don't do this for general maintenance, please. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there's shit at the fan. If you put down a reservoir to catch your oil, and caught all your oil that came out when you told, pulled the filter out, put a new filter on and dumped it back in, that would do an awful lot to extend the life of the oil. Now, again, that's an emergency level thing, but it's certainly something you can do. But just realize when you're worried about this, if the shit hits the fan ever that bad, you're not going to be putting anywhere near the mileage on that you're accustomed to. And having a range of 40,000 miles will either take you till the problem is over or a new solution is going to be found. And then we're never going back to, to that particular solution. I don't see that level of doomsday. But I do see a place where gas is $12 a gallon in our lifetimes easily. Easily. Maybe in the next 10 years or, or less. So be prepared for it. But just don't worry about trying to have, you know, another 250,000 miles worth of reserves on a vehicle that you're not going to be joyriding around in when uh, the road warrior and his clan are out there looking for you. Let's go ahead and take the next call. Hey, Jack. My name is Jim. I'm a teacher in New Jersey. Um, I teach history, and I want to teach my students about uh, the stock market. Um, I found this great website called HowTheStockMarketWorks.com where you can make an account and you can buy any stock that's traded on the New York Stock Exchange and then it keeps track of uh, how the value of the stock rises and falls. Now, what I want to do is uh, teach my students how the stock, you know, how trading works, but I don't want to make the goal just to make as much money as possible because I only have between now and June to work with the kids and I don't want to teach them about how, you know, short-term gains is the most important thing we should be focusing on. But I don't know what to tell them to focus on. You know, how do I score them? How do I encourage them to pick their investments so they're not only focusing on uh, short-term gains. I'll look what you think about it. Thanks for the show. First, I want to say that I looked at howthestockmarketworks.com 
and I get a vibe, a spider sense. I don't like it. I don't trust it. I have a bad feeling about it. I think there's probably other places where you can set up fake stock market accounts. I'm sure the audience will help out, post some links in the show notes today where that can be done, uh, that it maybe are a little bit more reputable. I get a feeling that these guys want to sell, uh, kind of backdoor sell, very high-end high expensive trading advice, uh, and maybe not that good of advice. I just... I could be wrong. I didn't research them deeply. Just saying I got a feeling, and my feelings with this stuff, with all my years on the Internet, are usually right. Um, but let's go back to your question now from there. Um, I think you're on the right track, and maybe doing a little bit of trading and stuff like that would be a good idea with the kids, and that's fine. And uh, I remember we did this when I was a kid, and exactly how we were graded was what you don't want to do. Who could make the most money in the least amount of time? And uh, we, my, I and my, we had to do this as partners, so we had pairs that got together. I and my partner did really good. Um, we made a bunch of money on Texas Instruments. I think we made the most money in the class. And all I did was call a stockbroker, because that's what my dad said to do, and asked him. I said, I'm doing this project for school, and they're telling me to buy a stock that will go up. What should I buy right now? And he goes, well, you know, I don't care for you. I said, like, we're not really buying it. It's a high school thing, dude. I'm like 15 years old. He goes, oh, 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 buy some Texas Instruments. They're about to have, it was like some kind of merger talk or something. And, uh, man, our, our, our stock went up like a bunch, and we sold it, quote, unquote. And uh, then we took the rest of the period of time, because we only had like three weeks to do this, and we put it into like a uh, like a money market account or something like that. Um and waited it out and said, hey, look how good we did, and uh, uh, got an A. And I think that was, I didn't learn anything from that. In fact, I got the exact wrong message from that. So I think you're on the right track. So maybe having them doing some investing based on research is a good idea, but I have a better idea for you. What if you made, see, I always talk about timing the market, and I try to explain the difference between trading and timing. Trading is when you're making stock buys and trades all the time. You're trying to maximize your return to the best you can. Timing is where you have a good diversified portfolio, in the words of most financial liars, I mean advisors, um, that, you know, it's the typical investment portfolio of stocks and bonds and small cap and mid cap and dividend and growth and income and whatever your goals are, and you're holding that, but there's a, a time when you just pull out, you tie your boat to shore, you tie it up to the dock, and you wait out a storm, and then when there's an opportunity, you re-enter. And people say you can't do that, and I say bullshit. It's actually really easy to do. This recent downturn was a perfect example of that. I screamed in 2008, get out, get out, get out, get out. And from the time the thing crashed, all the way through March, April of the next year, you had a buying opportunity. You may not have hit the bottom, but my God, you could have done wonderful, protected your earnings, and made new ones. And there were a million signals that that was going to come. What if you did this project with your class? Go back, take the Dow Jones Industrial Average or S&P or whatever you want, and go back and look at every major retraction of the market. And then use news search and things like that and have and challenge your class to find the indicators that that was coming and make it a history lesson. And see what the commonalities are of every major market drop going all the way back to the beginning of the Dow Jones. And, and, and make the project, how many indicators can you find? How many indicators are common across there? And have in-depth discussions about how to 
to, to time the next major market retraction and teach them the difference between major market timing and trading. So that they can become informed investors that don't use autopilot in that 401k or don't think that an E-Trade account and a thousand bucks is going to make them a millionaire by the end of the year. That's just my thought. And how you grade it, you would grade it based on performance. Just like you would grade any history, uh, a lesson. And that doesn't mean you don't buy any stocks. And maybe you do talk about individual restocks. And here's the other one. As you're doing this lesson, which stocks went up during the downturn? Which stocks stayed stable during the downturn and why? Which stocks are old companies that did it every single time? Which stocks are new companies that because of a new changing scene? Now you're going to learn something. Setting up a fake account, buying and trading stock will teach you nothing except how to trade stock. Researching the history of the market will go back to those statements in those uh Uh, those prospectuses that say past performance is no guarantee of future results, but history has shown it to be a strong indicator. Well, it is a strong indicator, but we have to think beyond holding the fund. That's just what I would do. Hope that helps you. Let's go ahead and take the next call. Hi, Jack. This is Charles from northeastern Wisconsin. How you doing? All right, I got a quick story, then a quick question. All right, the story, as uh, you know, most of the country just got blanketed in a bunch of snow, and we were not exempt from that. I have some friends that live in suburbia, and they, well, I've tried to tell them about prepping and stuff for months now, and most of it's kind of gone in one ear, gone out the other, but they live on a cul-de-sac, and when you get two feet of snow, and you live in a city, um, little dead-end roads with four families apparently aren't the highest priority to the city snowplow drivers, so they were kind of snowed in for about two days. Uh, they jokingly put on Facebook that they were like, forced to eat popcorn because that's kind of all they had uh, but I was able to use that uh, situation right there to kind of say hey look you do need to kind of have some food stored and like a little basic prep and stuff like that so uh, we may have just been able to add one more to the ranks of prepared for food anyway uh, my question also kind of concerns being stuck in snow uh, a lot of people in the country just got stuck um, uh, whether they were needed to drive on the road or they are being stupid or for whatever reason uh, they got stuck in the snow and well with this big snowstorms like many feet of snow some people drove off the road who knows whatever um but most people around here were kind of prepared and we have like zero degree mummy bags and we have like gloves and stuff like that in the cars um but what is a good alternative heating method for like inside a car or something like a survival bag or something like that or just a cold leather bag or something like that um, I've used like those little small Coleman gas powered stoves for like ice shanties and stuff like that. Uh, but I'm not really sure that that'd be safe inside an airtight car. Um, are there any recommendations besides, uh, basic hand warmers, anything like that for heating? All right. Thanks, Jack. Love all you do. Thanks. Well, a heater you can use inside a car. I'm not comfortable with just about anything because it's either going to consume electricity and deaden the battery in the car, and that you know any kind of heat out of just the battery is not going to last long, or it's going to produce noxious fumes that are capable of asphyxiating you and killing you, like you know CO2. Because in spite of the fact that CO2 is not really our enemy in a confined space, it most certainly is. So you know propane and things like that should not be burned inside a car. Uh, even with the windows cracked and all, I just, I just find it a risk that I would find unacceptable. So, your, your solution already of like zero degree mummy bags is probably the best one there is. 
Uh, what we have to realize with a car, we're in a car, we already have a shelter. Okay, we, we're gonna, we're gonna stop wind with a car. And if we have a lot of snow, or if we, if we allow the snow to build up on the car, uh, we actually are gonna create some insulation from the snow. And especially if there's more than one person in the car, we have body heat contained in the car. So that's already going to help to a large degree. Now, anybody that's been stuck in a cold car knows it can get damn cold in there. Uh, and if you can't run the car because you're either nearly out of gas uh, or the, the car's been damaged in some way with a wreck and you're waiting for help and you have to stay in the car, then then you can't run it because there's you know, no gas or the car just won't run or what have you. So good, solid sleeping bags and cold weather gear are the best way to go. This is where we have, we can take a lesson from Tom Brown. Tom Brown has, uh, in his Urban Survival Guide, says that uh, if you are in a home without heat, instead of trying to warm the home, create a smaller space. So take a mattress and pillows from a couch and create basically a little, a little hole. And you crawl in that hole to sleep and you'll be warm in there. It's much easier to use your body heat to eat a small space than to try to use some secondary uh, heat source to heat a large one. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. It makes me think, back when I was in the Army, and uh, we went through our field training exercise at the end of basic training, we were in South Carolina, and it was, it was cold that, that, that winter, really cold. Um, you know, not life-threatening cold or anything, but, you know, nights in the, in the low 20s, high teens, which is pretty cold. And what we had is our foxhole set up, and you'd be out on guard duty, and you're guarding against, you know, the drill sergeants messing with you, whatever. But through the night, we would have what they call 50% strength. And then at dawn, we had stand to, which is 100% strength. So 50% strength means you and your buddy have a foxhole. Your buddy mans the foxhole, and you sleep for an hour, and then you switch for and you maybe an hour or two each of sleep. So he's in the hole for an hour or two, and you go in this other hole for an hour or two. Well, the hole we would build to sleep in was a shallow hole about three feet deep, maybe two feet deep, with a, with a shelter half tarp over it covered with, with, you know, pine straw and trees and basically camouflage. Inside there was a sleeping bag. And it was just a little hole you could slip in and go down in that hole. When you first got in there, you felt kind of cold. Very, very quickly climbing a sleeping bag and being in that hole, you were very warm. So warm that you really didn't want to come out of there when your buddy woke you up to go back to, to the hole. But I never felt cold once I was in that sleeping bag and gave a little bit of time for the body heat to be retained. You definitely do the same thing in a vehicle. So it's more about having good blankets and, and like you said, mummy sleeping bags, probably the best thing to carry in your car with cold weather, along with food and water. Definitely carry some water that you, you know, the thing is people say, well, my water will freeze solid in my trunk. Yeah, it will. So don't leave a big jug of water in your trunk with that type of thing. It's either you're bringing it to your vehicle each time or you're keeping it inside the cab of the vehicle and you're not likely to have it freeze while your vehicle's parked for eight hours at work. If it does, it's not going to freeze solid. And when you get in your car, run your heater, uh, put it up by the heater and let it, let it defrost it or what have you or take it into the house at night, that type of thing. And the other thing to remember about being stranded with a vehicle is soon as the, uh, as the, the snow stops, and if you get any kind of solar activity at all during the day, uh, don't, you won't need to run your heater during the day. You can serve your gas if you're waiting for rescue. You can save your gas to run in the evenings because even on a very cold day, once you get sunlight onto the windows of a vehicle, it's quite warm in there, probably warmer than you want it to be. So that's the approach I would take with that. Good question. On your friends maybe learning a lesson, I think we always need to use those opportunities to say, hey, hey, you know what we were doing when you were eating popcorn? We were kicked back with a great 
big steaming cup of hot chocolate. And we were watching the TV that was being powered by our backup generator. And Dad went out, and in spite of the snow, we shoveled off the deck and fired up the propane grill and made a big old hunk of ribeye, and that's what we ate for dinner. Hope you enjoyed your popcorn. Now, I'm not really being that nasty with you. I just want to make a point. Had you listened to us, it would have been a lot easier for you. And it only lasted a couple days. I just want you to think about this now. What if... This storm included ice, took out the power lines, and instead of being there for two days, you were stuck for two weeks, and somebody had gotten sick or hurt during that period of time. How well prepared for that event would you have been? You owe it to your family to be prepared. That message is not just for your friends, folks. It's for you today. I hope you take it to heart. I hope every day you're working a little bit more on being a little bit more prepared and a little bit more liberated. You're on a sliding scale. I've said this before. I'll say it again today as I close. Every single day, you get a little bit more prepared and a little bit closer to total freedom, or you get a little bit further from those two things. You don't really have a choice. You're going to move in the spectrum either up or down. I hope you make the conscious choice to keep advancing just a little bit every day. Move an inch a day for a year. And when you look back a year from now, you'll be amazed at how far you've come. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living for